0: Good morning, clerks. Welcome back to another episode of The Clerk Commute.
1: Okay, welcome to our listeners today at The Clerk Commute. My name is Brendan, and this is my co host, Lauren.
0: This podcast episode is centered around the specialty of anesthesia. We will discuss an approach to common perioperative problems that the anesthesiologist may encounter on a daily basis. The perioperative period includes the time from when the patient arrives at the hospital undergoes surgery, and then gets sent home. In each of these specific instances, medical issues that can arise that may need prompt intervention. Today's episode was edited by our very own Dr. Matt DeSilva, an anesthesiology resident at the University of Toronto.
1: Okay, Lauren, let's kick things off by asking, what are some of the common perioperative problems that the anesthesiologist will encounter and must successfully approach on a daily basis?
0: That is a great question. First, it's easier to think of these problems in two ways. One, problems that arise inside of the operating room, and two, problems that arise outside of the operating room. Ultimately, many of the problems may be tied back to disturbances in the patient's physiology. First, we will provide a framework of how anesthesiologists generally approach common perioperative problems, and then we will delve into what these problems are.
1: Okay, great. And can you give our listeners an overview of this approach?
0: Absolutely. So, as in many areas of medicine, a stepwise approach is paramount. So, in anesthesia, we start with the ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation. Here, we have adapted this to a 10-step approach, and always remember, when in doubt, call for help. Now, on to step one. Okay, step one, you need to evaluate the patient for a patent airway. This takes precedence over any other interventions. Here, we are looking for evidence of an obstructed airway, which indicates that the patient is not able to get oxygen into their body. Signs of an obstructed airway include a lack of air movement, noisy or stridorous respirations, tracheal tugging, intercostal indrawing, and a lack of air entry on auscultation. If the patient is not intubated, start by utilizing the chin lift and jaw thrust maneuver, remove any foreign bodies in the mouth, suction out any secretions, and insert an oral or nasal airway. If the patient is intubated, first check that the intubation tube is in the right position. You can do this directly by checking for N-tidal carbon dioxide with each exhalation and visually with the laryngoscopy. Visualize that when you are putting in the um, endotracheal tube, visualize the tube passing the vocal cords. Indirect confirmation includes observing the rise and fall of the patient's chest, auscultation of bilateral breath sounds, and misting on the endotracheal tube. Lastly, Always remember that in emergency situations, bagging a patient with 100% O2 can be used for rapid administration of oxygen to a patient.
1: All right, and step two, we want to evaluate the patient to ensure adequate ventilation. Many conditions can result in respiratory insufficiency. The astute clinician will take into account all vital signs when resolving an airway issue. Keep in mind, there's a difference between oxygenation and ventilation. Oxygenation is the ability to get oxygen into the body, while ventilation refers to getting carbon dioxide out. It is possible to oxygenate a patient, but not ventilate them. This can happen when the patient is very obstructed. Inability to ventilate patients can lead to high levels of carbon dioxide, which can eventually cause the patient to stop breathing effectively.
0: Okay. In step three, we assess the patient's heart rate and rhythm. The goal here is to quickly rule in or out a cardiac arrest situation. Severe bradycardia should be assumed to be secondary to hypoxemia until proven otherwise.
1: Excellent. In step four, we want to assess the patient's blood pressure and perfusion. Hypotension may result in decreased organ perfusion. Think of the brain, heart, and kidneys. Poor brain perfusion may manifest as anxiety, confusion, or unconsciousness. Poor cardiac perfusion may result in dysrhythmias or ECG's evidence of ischemia. And inadequate renal perfusion may result in decreased urinary output.
0: Okay, on to step five. This is when we assess the patient's volume status. Be careful. Important changes in the patient's blood volume status may be clinically subtle, yet result in rapid and significant alteration to vital signs and mental status. In the volume status assessment, we assess for JVP, fluid intake, fluid output, and this includes hemorrhage and urine output. Um, And finally, in the UR, this means examining the surgical wound, sponges, suction apparatuses, NT drainage, and all of this together, we can assess the fluid losses.
1: Step six, check the patient's temperature. Alterations in temperature may result in important cardiorespiratory abnormalities. Hypothermia may result in shivering, a rise in heart rate, blood pressure and a 200% increase in oxygen consumption whereas hyperthermia may be a result of a drug or blood product administration fever sepsis active intraoperative warming efforts or underlying disease states
0: okay finally we're moving on to step 7 this is where we scan for obvious causes of the abnormality and we correct them this is what we will discuss and equip listeners with later on in this podcast
1: The next step is step eight, where we want to establish additional monitors where appropriate. For example, we could use a less invasive approach and establish ECG monitoring, a BP cuff, put a pulse oximeter on, and a temperature probe on the patient. Or we can take a more invasive approach and insert a Foley catheter, arterial line, central venous pressure line, or pulmonary artery catheter. Although it takes time to put in these invasive monitors, it will help you it will help provide you with even more useful information that you can use when making a diagnosis.
0: Okay, in step nine, we investigate. We need to reach a diagnosis. Common investigations include a complete blood count, an INR, a PTT, an ABG, a chest X-ray, an ECG, glucose, lights, and a creatinine.
1: And lastly, step 10 is to formulate a provisional diagnosis, a differential, and a management plan.
0: Wow, that was a comprehensive plan. I think 10 steps leads right into how we can manage some common perioperative problems. The common perioperative problems we will discuss in this episode include bradycardia, tachycardia, hypertension, and hypotension. Remember, earlier we said it can all tie back to hemodynamics and physiology. When thinking about the differential diagnosis, it is often helpful to think through causes based on systems. This ensures that you do not miss key diagnoses that could be the difference between saving a patient or not.
1: Okay, that's right. Let's start by talking about the differential diagnosis and treatment of perioperative bradycardia, which is defined as a heart rate of less than 60 beats per minute. The differential includes respiratory causes of bradycardia, such as hypoxia, hypercarbia, and acidosis. Cardiovascular causes of bradycardia include decreased sympathetic tone, perhaps from a beta blocker, or a high spinal or epidural anesthesia, typically considered higher than T1 to T4 levels, or neurogenic shock. We must also consider increased parasympathetic tone and decreased conduction when considering cardiovascular causes of bradycardia. Next, we can consider neurological causes, such as the baroreceptor reflex from high ICP or high blood pressure. We must consider the vagal reflex, and we must consider drugs that can cause bradycardia, including anesthetic, opioids, neostigmines, and beta blockers. And lastly, there are miscellaneous causes such as hypothermia and hypothyroidism. Treatment options start with removing the offending cause and may be followed by O2 administration, fluid administration, placing the patient in Trendelenburg position, and pharmacologics. This could include atropine, ephedrine, dopamine, and epinephrine, as well as transcutaneous pacing.
0: Okay, so now I'm going to take us to the opposite side of this coin, which is perioperative tachycardia. Perioperative tachycardia is defined as a heart rate greater than 100 beats per minute. We'll also use a system-based approach. There are cardiovascular causes of tachycardia, including sinus tachycardia, perhaps from shock states, and or arrhythmias. There are neurologic causes of tachycardia, including inadequate anesthesia and anxiety. There are genitourinary causes, such as bladder distention, renal colic, Foley catheter, Obstruction and urosepsis. And finally, sorry, not finally, there's also hematologic causes such as anemia or a transfusion reaction. There are endocrine causes such as a hypermetabolic state, perhaps in fever, sepsis, or other. Immune causes such as anaphylaxis. And finally, medication related causes such as atropine. Ultimately, treatment is directed at the underlying cause. So it is essential to follow a stepwise approach to formalize a differential and a management plan.
1: So we've discussed changes in heart rate, now let's discuss changes in blood pressure. First up is the differential in treatment of perioperative hypertension defined as a blood pressure greater of 140 over 90. Again, we'll take a systems-based approach to our differential, starting with respiratory causes such as hypoxia or hypercarbia. Moving on, we can consider neurological causes such as pain, anxiety, inadequate analgesia, delirium, and increased intracranial pressure. Next, we can consider genitourinary causes, such as renal disease, bladder distension, and pregnancy-induced hypertension. We will also consider endocrine causes, such as hyperthyroidism, Cushing's disease, pheochromos- pheochromocytoma, cons, malignant hypothermia, or malignant neuroleptic syndrome. And lastly, we consider medication-induced causes, such as administ- administration of some medications that cause tachycardia can also cause hypertension. We can also consider withdrawal of these medications. Know what meds and substances the patients are taking can be helpful to identify medication-induced causes. Treatment is again directed at the cause of hypertension. Commonly, we start with examination to exclude reversible causes, for example, a full bladder or a raised intracranial pressure. Then we want to optimize oxygenation and ventilation. Then we must consider sedation and may increase the depths of anesthesia, administer opioids, and or a beta blocker dilators, an ACE inhibitor, or calcium channel blockers can also be considered at this time.
0: OK, and last but not least, we have hypotension. The purpose of the cardiopulmonary system is to deliver oxygen and nutrients to tissues. When tissue needs are not met, a state of shock ensues. We utilize blood pressure as a gross and indirect measure of organ perfusion. Causes of perioperative hypotension can be chunked into three major categories. One related to decreased contractility, two, decreased systematic vascular resistance, or three, impaired venous return. Breaking it down into those, this is what I mean. In terms of decreased heart contractility, this may be a dose dependent consequence of an anesthetic agent, for example, propofol or benzodiazepines. It could be related to cardiac medications, including beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, or it can be related to cardiac dysfunction, thinking ischemia, infarction, or impaired ventricular dysfunction. The treatment is again related to the cause, and here is aimed at decreasing the anesthetic depth, supporting contractility, treating arrhythmias, and treating ischemia. The second cause I I discussed about perioperative hypotension is decreased systematic vascular resistance. This can also be a result of anesthetic agents. Think other ones, including opioids, benzodiazepines, nitrates, and then back to calcium channel blockers and ACE inhibitors. This could be as a result of a sympathetic nerve block. Think neuroaxial anesthesia. This could be the result of sepsis, anaphylaxis, profound hypoxia, and adrenal suppression. To treat this, we focus on decreasing anesthetic depth, decreasing the epidural infusion rate, treating actively with vasopressors, and volume expansion. Last but not least, we think of perioperative hypotension, which may be as a result of impaired venous return. A potential consequence of hypo... Sorry. This could be a potential consequence of hypovolemia. Think about the patient's ongoing losses like we discussed above. Venous pooling. Think about neuroaxial anesthesia or histamine release. This could be due to IVC obstruction. Think about a pregnant patient with a gravid uterus, surgical retraction, or increased intraabdominal pressure. And finally, this could be related to in- elevated central venous and intrathoracic pressure. Think about patients with PEEP, hyperinflation, tension pneumothorax, cardiac tamponade, and pulmonary embolism. The main goal in treatment here is to remove the mechanical obstruction impairing venous return, while subsequently focusing on volume expansion.
1: Well, Lauren, this has been a lot of information on how to keep our patients safe and healthy in the OR. Really, we focused a lot on the management of a patient's hemodynamics. To finish this episode off, let's discuss two common problems patients experience post-operatively and that the astute clinician must be able to detect and manage effectively.
0: Absolutely. What are those two problems?
1: All right. Well, we'll talk about post-operative nausea and vomiting and post-operative agitation and delirium. Let's start with discussing post-operative nausea and vomiting, which is associated with significant healthcare costs and prolonged hospital stay. The only consistent independent patient-related risk factor for post-operative nausea and vomiting are female sex, non-smoking status, a history of previous post-operative nausea and vomiting, or a history of motion sickness. Other evidence-based factors include the administration of opioids or volatiles during the operation. The type of operation also matters, as some are more prone to post-operative nausea and vomiting than others, such as middle ear surgery. Without anti. Anti emetic prophylaxis, the average patient has a 20 to 30% risk of experiencing post operative nausea and vomiting if they underwent general anesthesia with inhalational agents. This number increases to 70 to 80% when risk factors are identified.
0: Okay, so with regards to risk factors, a helpful score is using the APFEL scoring system, which can be used to identify patients at risk of post operative nausea and vomiting. This is a simple scoring system of four points. One is for the female sex, one is for a non-smoker, one is for a history of post-operative nausea and vomiting, and one is for post-operative opioids. The clinician can utilize the Apfel score, the type of anesthetic used, and the surgical procedure to identify patients that may benefit from prophylactic antiemetics. Current guidelines do not support the, reuse, the use of routine antiemetic prophylaxis in patients with low risk of post-operative nausea and vomiting but prophylaxis may be appropriate in patients with complications from, sorry, prophylaxis may be appropriate in patients at risk of complications from vomiting, i.e. a wired jaw, neurosurgical cases, and gastric and esophageal surgery. Monotherapy with a serotonin 5-HT3 receptor antagonist, i.e. And- ondansetron, is recommended for patients who require a general anesthetic and have one, at least one postoperative nausea vomiting risk factor. Combination therapy is recommended for patients with two or more risk factors. They, recommend available, they recommended available classes of medications include ondansetron, as mentioned, a dopamine antagonist such as metacopramized, steroids such as dexamethasone, and another agent called promethazine, and finally antihistamines like dimenhydrinate, also known as Gravol, and anticholinergics like transdermal scopolamine. Hopefully, we don't have to use many of these medications, and there are some strategies we can harness to reduce the risk of postoperative nausea and vomiting. These include using regional or local anesthesia versus general anesthesia, using propofol for induction and maintenance, avoiding nitrous oxide and volatile anesthetics, minimizing opioid use, and ensuring adequate hydration.
1: Wow, Lauren, that was a fantastic overview. Let's finish up this episode by discussing how we can manage postoperative agitation and delirium. Agitation is a nonspecific descriptor of excessive motor activity as a result of internal discomfort. Anxiety describes an unpleasant alteration in mood or emotion that does not impair the patient's normal ability to think. Delirium is an acute confusional state accompanied by cognitive or perceptual impairment. The diagnosis of delirium post-operatively or in the ICU can be made using the confusion assessment method or the CAM-ICU method when a patient is identified as having, one, acute onset or fluctuating impairment in cognition, two, inattention, and three, disorganized thinking or an altered level of consciousness.
0: Right. The development of delirium in the post-operative period is associated with unintended extubation, removal of catheters physical and chemical restraint requirements, and prolonged ICU stays and hospital cost. It is best prevented, and preoperative geriatric assessment for high-risk patients is the most effective means of preventing delirium in the the perioperative period. An initial approach to a delirious patient begins with the ABCs and a gross neurological exam, i.e. pupils, gross motor movements, and the Glasgow Coma Scale. The patient can be approached using the DIMS mnemonic. This stands for drugs, infection, metabolic and structural as an overall way to conceptualize delirium etiologies. Common causes of agitation include pain as well as bowel and bladder distension. Remember, the post-operative patient may not be able to communicate this verbally to the team. In terms of treatment, benzodiazepines should only be used in the case of alcohol withdrawal. Alcohol withdrawal. Otherwise, think low-dose haloperidol for treatment after using the DIMS approach to detect and treat the offending causes. More recent trials using second-generation antipsychotics have also been encouraging. Things we can do intraoperatively to help reduce the amount of postoperative delirium is to use dexmedetomidine. This is an alpha-2 agonist that acts on the spinal cord and helps provide a smoother wake-up for the patient.
1: Wow, Lauren, this is quite a comprehensive episode. We hope these concepts will be helpful to you, and we encourage you to discuss them while on your anesthesia rotation to learn how nuances and approach may differ between clinicians.
0: Thank you all for listening, and we hope you tune into the next episode of the Clerk Commute podcast. Bye for now.